Welcome to the Lend Academy podcast, episode number 129. This is your host, Peter Renton, founder of Lend Academy and co-founder of Lendit. Today's episode is sponsored by AlphaFlow. Let professional investment managers build you a personal portfolio of short-term, high-yield real estate loans. With AlphaFlow optimized portfolios, your investment of as little as $10,000 is diversified across at least 15 states and 75 to 100 loans. Investors earn 8 to 10% average annualized returns with no picking, waiting, or missing out on the best loans. Go to www.alphaflow.com slash lendacademy to get started. Today on the show, we have someone a little bit different, sharing a different kind of story with us. I'm delighted to welcome the CEO and co-founder of DealStruck, Ethan Centuria, onto the show. Now, Ethan founded DealStruck in uh, in 2013. They were an online small business lender. They actually went out of business in late 2016. And what's really notable about this is that Ethan has actually written a book about his entrepreneurial journey from all the way through the founding of DealStruck through its dissolution. And I wanted to get on the show to, to share some of the, the things that he's learned along the way. And it really, the book was a fascinating read. It was, a, I found it really revealing and learned a lot about the inner workings of his company and, and about Ethan himself. And I feel like it was a brave and uh, courageous thing to do to really be brutally honest about his own shortcomings and, and the reasons why the deal struck didn't make it. So we go through all of this and more in the show. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the podcast, Ethan. Thanks, Peter. Nice to be here. Okay, so why don't you give the listeners a little bit of background about yourself and what you did before you actually started DealStruck? Absolutely. So I grew up uh, in Southern California, the son of an entrepreneur. Spent a lot of time in startups as a a young child and ultimately went off to business school uh, as an undergraduate thinking that I wanted to follow in my dad's entrepreneurial footsteps. When I got uh, to Wharton, which is where I went to school, went the finance track and made the leap from Wharton to Wall Street and started my career at Lehman Brothers on a distressed bond trading desk, which uh, was ironically within the most distressed company there was in the space at the time anyhow. So I probably should have been doing research on, on ourselves, but stayed there for a little bit and went through the bankruptcy, which was a formative experience for me early on in my career to realize how fragile even big historic institutions can be. And sort of looked around at a thousand person trading floor and said, I don't think I want to be like anyone here. So Mm -hmm. moved back to Southern California and got into entrepreneurship, had the fortune to meet up with some friends and build an internet marketing company for my first go round. And uh, my second venture was DealStruck in the financial technology slash alternative lending space. And that's where I spent the last five or six years before finding myself where I am now. Okay. So let's go back to those very early days. And what was, what was the opportunity that you saw when you decided to start DealStruck? There was a huge market opportunity on paper in the small business lending space to combine unique and fair products with a better delivery system than what banks were doing at the time. 
And we sort of had seen this back in 2012 as Lending Club and Prosper were just starting to get institutional capital and really get attention for the fact that what they were doing on the marketplace and peer-to-peer side, uh, filling the gap where banks had stepped away or never were uh, for consumers was something that was going to happen uh, or needed to happen in small business. So you combine this, this market that on paper looks extremely large. You had still record low interest rates. You had pretty significant anti-bank sentiment. And it seemed like a confluence of, of perfect, confl- a perfect confluence of events to try to stick ourselves in the middle of the small business market and, and do something different. Certainly those factors, a lot of them are still there today. I think the biggest, the biggest thing people are starting to learn or trying to figure out is how this market that on paper looks so big in practice can seem so small. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So let's talk about those early days a bit more and, and, and talk about sort of how you went about initially funding the company, going out and raising money. And how did you go about that? Sure. So the harder task early on actually was, uh, you know, we started the business as a marketplace and we ended the business as a direct lender mm-hmm. lending off of our balance sheet. In the marketplace model, we needed to get enough investor interest to have some sense that if we found a deal to do, we would actually be able to fund it. And so I went on sort of a a founding lender tour and what most entrepreneurs have to do trying to get seed investors, uh, angel investors into their equity, I did for the debt. And these were started with concentric circles of friends and family and then friends of friends and extended family of my family. And then eventually starting to get into people who, you know, were sort of arm's length investors or third party investors. But it was walking into a room, telling them, wouldn't it be great to lend to a small business and get, you know, 8, 10, 12 percent return for it, making the pitch. And when uh, someone said no, you just went on to the next and on to the next until you found enough capital to to try to to try to launch. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, and then what about equity on the equity side of the business? Obviously, you, you know, the lending capital is one piece, but you need, you know, you need operational capital. And was that, was that a different type of, uh, uh, of ask that you were, that you went around doing that uh, to raise equity? Yeah. So we didn't have a huge equity need early on. It was myself and, and my co-founder and neither of us were expecting or taking you know, pay out of the business. So we didn't have much to spend on until we actually got the lending capital rounded up. Right. But on the equity side, you know, I wrote a check. My dad wrote a check. It wasn't a significant amount of money just to get us enough in the bank account to, to be somewhat credible and be able to you know, pay some lawyers some fees and, and buy basic tools to get our websites up and running. The initial kind of angel investors in the equity ultimately had a high overlap with people who, who wanted to invest in the loans themselves too. Right. So in, in the early days, you know, it's not quite like in the institutional world where you have you know, credit funds and venture capitalists or private equity funds. You have high net worth investors who sometimes want to buy a lot of tickets, sometimes want to want to buy some current income through a credit instrument. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. So, you know, like we first covered, covered you guys on Lend Academy. It was about uh, just about four years ago. And I know you got some you got some pretty significant coverage in the New York Times soon after that. Now I don't think Lend Academy was necessarily responsible for that, 
But tell us about sort of those those initial days and when you, you know, I know that the New York Times article was uh, was a pretty seminal moment at your company. So tell us a little bit of, about sort of getting going and when you kind of felt like you you had some momentum and you got so you you got on the map with that sort of coverage. Yeah, it's interesting because I always had thought that PR is sort of goofy and doesn't <laughs> have a lot of substance behind it. Right, but I definitely learned that that it's absolutely necessary. You know, as for the New York Times article, it was a significant boost for the company. It all came about because I had a really great team member who probably a lot of people listening to this know, Candace Klein, who had joined our team and really focused on all of our events and outreach and PR. And she had kind of put me through a quote unquote charm school. And <laughs> when I was at a conference, I met a New York Times reporter and I spent an hour, hour and a half talking with her, didn't really know what she was going to do with whatever I said. And, you know, a couple of weeks later, there we were on the, the front page of the business section. And, you know, the business sort of took a step function up for the first time in terms of, of applications and funded volumes. And it never really fell below that. And I think, you know, it's hard to say whether we would have found our footing and gotten a boost from some other way had that never happened. But uh, it certainly was one of those kind of fortuitous things that didn't really know what was going on. And, and when it landed, we were energized and it, it, you know, for the next five years, that article continued to drive organic traffic right. to the site. Yep. So when we chatted four years ago, you, you, know, you, you were offering term loans, you know, 12 to 36 month terms. You know, I know that you added a, like a line of credit type products. You just talk us through the products, the deal struck, uh, offered and sort of the mix between those, the, the term loans and the, the sort of the line of credit product? So we had a couple different products. One of the theses that we had when we launched the business was that the way to be really efficient acquiring customers, which is expensive and difficult to do in this market, is to be able to have products that needed the various needs that a small business would have. So we had term loans which are relatively vanilla, 12 to 36 month fully amortizing products. We had two revolving products. One of them was an inventory credit line where a borrower would get a credit limit and be able to submit purchase orders so that we would fund them directly. And then they would pay those back on a shorter amortization and be able to have multiple draws outstanding at a time. And then the other product we had was an invoice-based product, sort of a small ticket ABL where B2B companies that needed to borrow against uh, future receivables could, could accelerate cash from those lines. Those products in and of themselves are totally viable. I think as we went out to launch the business, we heard sort of two things. On the, you know, on the one hand, people really believed the thesis of having multiple products to lower acquisition costs, retain customers, increase lifetime values. On the other hand, some people would say, well, gee, don't you think it's going to be hard to do three different products instead of focusing on one? You know, probably 50% of the people were in one camp and 50% were in the other. And the people who thought it was too hard didn't invest and the others did. And I think that's where you see today that those product lines in and of themselves are their own significantly backed venture businesses. So if you, you know, look at the blue vines and the fun boxes of the world on, on the invoice side and 
PWIs and, and then on the inventory, uh, on the inventory side, you have folks like behalf and others that, you know, trying to put all three of those under one roof without nearly the capitalization that they had was probably too much to do. But I think the products in and of themselves are relevant. And, and I think we were good in that sense of being sort of a product shop. Mm-hmm. Sure. So then can you tell us like how the loan volume went? I mean, you, what were you, what were you doing at the peak? I mean, how much, how much volume? I think at our peak, we were around seven, seven and a half million per month. And that was sort of a long slog all the way through. And I think others serving this mid prime market where the loan sizes are a bit larger and the underwriting is a bit lengthier and more judgmental than automated had the same experience where there was really no magic bullet to, to scale the assets we were originating. And so, you know, we ultimately got up to a respectable amount of volume and had a real presence in the space, but there were no days where we just woke up and turned on the machine and saw ourselves, you know, double or triple. It was just kind of a steady grind. Mm -hmm. And I think that that experience probably isn't, isn't unique based on sort of where others who we competed with in the past have sort of ended up. Right. And so then at, at, at the peak around then, like who were the investors that were, that were funding? I know you, you sort of said you morphed into a balance sheet type operation, but who were the, the people that were supplying your capital or companies supplying your capital? So most of our capital was from sort of credit hedge funds and alternative asset managers some notable names in the space. We worked with, you know, Jacob Haar at Community Investment Management. We worked with Brendan Ross at Direct Lending Investments. We worked with a hedge fund out of New York uh, called Brevet, all of whom were, were really good partners to us. But we, yeah, we had a few different facilities and that was quite beneficial, certainly as things got a little bit challenging to be able to, for a, time, you know, for a while, not be beholden to, to a single player. So, um, mm-hmm. but most of it was institutional capital. Right. So then I'm curious about, we saw the investor pullback happen, it's, you know, started to happen sort of very late 2015, but it really in early 2016, we definitely saw on the consumer side anyway, the investors started to you know, pull, back from, pull back capital a little bit. Um, several platforms were noticing that, that, that they couldn't originate as much as, as much as they did in 2015. And I'm curious to know on, on, uh, with, if you noticed that at DealStruck as well on the small business side. Well, you know, we, we never experienced uh, a pullback from our own set of lenders in the sense of, of someone kind of pulling the rug out from under us. We had a very committed group who, who worked with us. And, and obviously, you know, this is a story that, that, that didn't end up well, we shot ourselves in the foot and I didn't lead the company as well as it needed to be led to, to have a good outcome. And so, you know, credit to the, to the partners we had who, who stuck with us and, and continued to provide us liquidity and work with us as, as things got hard, both in the industry as well as with, you know, in our own sort of circumstances. Where we really saw issues was when we what we needed to do ultimately to try to right size the business and, and get ourselves to dry land, if you will, was to reduce our funding costs and to raise equity. And that's when the headwinds really hit us, not with within the set of investors that we had committed to the company, but but really in trying to go out and get to that next level where where the company would would get far closer to to a neutral cash position. So that was um a difficult time, not just for us, 
certainly for a lot of others. Uh, right. But the issue was really, you know, the folks outside of the, the deal struck wall, not, not the ones already in them. Right. So, and let's talk a little bit about that because, I mean, I know that, you know, in your book, you meant you talk about the events of May 9 at Lending Club, which obviously has been talked about and written about ad nauseum for the last 18 months. But correct me if I'm wrong, but you were out raising equity, I believe, around that time. And like, just tell us a little bit about what it was like pre-May 9th and post-May 9th um, and, and whether or not, you know, how much of a difference the, that event made to, you know, a business like yourself that was, you know, fairly unrelated to Lending Club, but, you know, but still, you know, obviously I imagine um, others didn't see it as unrelated. So tell us a little bit about the, that time period. Yeah, so before May 9th, you know, we had a challenging capital raise ahead of us, no doubt, simply because of some of the setbacks that we had in the business and, and want, you know, some of our, our credit portfolio. So it wasn't going to be an easy raise before that, but certainly we were, we were having some reception and the likelihood of there being something, uh, even if it was painful, was, was probably you know, somewhat realistic. But on May 9th, it was actually one of my more memorable events. I was actually pitching a, an interesting VC that, that was related to a big consulting firm, and I was in front of 10 partners at this consulting firm who were in their banking practice or financial institutions practice. And it was literally on May 9th. And I sort of got up in front of the room and my, my friend who worked at the fund had asked me to come present to them. And he's sitting in the back of the room and I get up there and I, I say, Oh, we're deal struck. We're you know, platform for online, small business lending. And I guess I sort of need to address uh, the news that came out today because clearly that's the elephant in the room. And everyone kind of just started laughing. And I think from that point forward, they sort of checked their phones or went on a water break and, and uh, that was somewhat representative of kind of the rest of the effort to try to land the ship, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, we had a, we had a, we were sailing upwind before May 9th due to our, you know, my own sort of missteps, our own missteps. And after May 9th, I think it was it was hard to even get an audience. Right. So and, and just tell us like the, the time and you write about it in the book, but tell us about the, the final straw when you realize that that you were out of options and the business was was not going to make it. Yeah, I mean, we really had it down down to the to the wire. You know, we we took it out as far as we could before we had to sort of wind down the company appropriately. We, we actually had a, a term sheet with a bank, a small bank, to, to sell the company. They liked the team and the technology and liked the, the product and the, the markets and that we were in. So we were in a closing cycle with them, trying to get a deal done and. I had been told by a couple people, oh, small bank deal will never happen. I said, yeah, yeah, maybe this time's going to be different. Maybe this time's going to be different. And ultimately, I think you had a small bank that was looking at a transaction that for them was not insignificant and had a little bit too much hair on it. So kind of couldn't get everyone to get on the same page with enough time to find a way to get a deal done and uh, sort of had a drop dead date on the calendar where if we don't have a transaction sort of closing timeline committed to by this day, you know, in order to wind down the company appropriately and, and, you know, protect the, you know, the officers and the employees and the vendors as best we could, we would have to call it quits. And, and unfortunately the message came through on a Tuesday that, you know, the bank was not going to do the deal and, or on a Monday rather. And then on a Tuesday, we 
we uh, broke the news to the team and started the the next phase. So uh, when was that? What was the date? Uh, I think it was November 15th. I know it was right before Thanksgiving, which made it pretty brutal for me because uh, right. I felt I felt really badly going into holiday season with, with you know, my team because that's, there's not a ton of hiring that time. A lot of the people on my team were, were very high quality people and they weren't just going to want to run into next. They were going to want to find something that was great for them. So it was a not great timing, but I think mostly people understood that we tried to do everything we could. Right. Right. So I want to switch gears a little bit now and talk about the book. And you were kind enough to send me an advance uh, copy of it. And I, I read it um, you know, over the past week. And you know, I'd like to compliment you first. I think you've done a really excellent job in conveying the story. It was a fascinating read for someone like myself, who's obviously been involved in the industry for a long time. I recognize you know, many of the players and I knew some of the bits of the story, but I didn't know anything about the you know the, the inner workings at Dealstruck and how you know how things kind of built up and then and then you know the struggles that, that you guys put in so so I guess my first question is why did you decide to write the book yeah for for many reasons you know I think the biggest reason is to try to be more scientific about learning from failure to catalog things. And, and there's sort of two stories being told, right? One is a story of a lending company that did well for a while and then didn't do well. And to people in the lending business, that will be hopefully an interesting story. But for entrepreneurs or, or people in the startup world outside of lending, there's the story of being a young or first-time founder, of going through all of the, the ups and downs, the psychological challenges, uh, the emotional roller coaster of being an entrepreneur and and how how failure really brought out how difficult those were and how critical managing your own psychology and and the psychology of your team around you is in good times or in bad times. So ultimately, it was to learn to make sure that when I do it again, because I I hope I do and I I plan to maybe not in I, I don't know in what industry, but you know I think an entrepreneur for better or worse that I can really know hey what worked what didn't work what do I need to change with some amount of objectivity. And, and really the other piece of it was, I'd like to help people. I think being an entrepreneur is a noble endeavor. It, it's it's uh, extremely challenging. I think the learning curve is unbelievably steep and there's really no way to, to learn it unless you do it. And when you look at the literature out there, you see lots of books about people who have been very successful, even if they failed early, they've then been successful. You see lots of people telling you, here's the 20 things you should do to build your company. It's not as much about what you shouldn't do or what you, sh- you might want to be prepared for that isn't particularly glamorous. It's sort of like going into a marriage and being like, I think you should think about divorce or the things that lead you to it so that you know what to avoid and what pitfalls, you know, sort of lay down the road of, of the Deadpool, if you will. So hopefully some entrepreneurs read it and find themselves either understood or take some insights out of it that helped them be more successful. I know I'm going to be one of those entrepreneurs who rereads it and, and tries to make sure I learn from it. So, mm. and you know, if people are entertained by it, that's a nice uh, side benefit. But Okay. Well, now I've got to tell you, you, you write with a, a brutal honesty. I would say that, you know, you, you really don't sugarcoat anything as far as I could see anyway. And you, 
you know, you sort of talk about your personal struggles as you're going through this, uh, you know, this, this process. And to me, that was one of the most fascinating pieces is it wasn't a, an, a sort of a, uh, I don't know, like a, a sterile analytical type book about here are the things you've, you should do and here are things you shouldn't do. It was a journey of, of, of one individual's process of, you know, self-discovery and self-awareness and, and how you kind of dealt the good times and the bad times in this book, which I thought was fascinating. So did you, did you find writing the book was it, was it cathartic in some way or, or how was, how was the actual process of writing the book? Yeah. So, I mean, I wrote the book as a memoir because I'm not particularly qualified to tell people here's a hundred tips to do things. Well, I mean, I, I don't, I don't have, <laughs> I don't have those credentials. So I wrote it as a story with some hints about what I would do, but really so that people can take from the situations what they think is valuable and just think about them in light of their own circumstances. It's funny you say that it's written with brutal honesty. I think it's written with honesty. My view is if you saw a first draft, <laughs> it probably would have been brutal. But, um, <laughs> you know, what I, what I, the, the point of it was not, was not to antagonize myself, my partners, people who supported me in the journey. You know, I, I would never have, have had a chance without them. It was part cathartic to begin with. But I think first draft was, man, that felt good to get it out on paper. But as I went through the second, third, fourth rounds of editing and drafting, having other people look at it and, and make me think about it, it became a much more objective exercise where it almost was like doing a, you know, it was a case study uh, where finally six months removed from the end of it as CEO, I was able to see it with an objective lens. And that's where the real learning and insight came from. And that's where I think hopefully some of the things that are most, you know, sort of poignant or stick out to the reader. My guess is that they were written as I got further and further away from it. And the stuff that was probably written, you know, the day after I laid everyone off may have had a, had a bit more mm, emotion behind it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you, you said in the book that the, the number one thing that you would do differently is you would have you would have properly capitalized the business. And so, so just going back now, what exactly would you have done to, to achieve that? Well, there's two sides of proper capitalization. It's really about aligning the capital the capitalization that you have with the growth trajectory and sort of product profile of the business. If I had my druthers, I would have raised a lot more money. And I, you know, who knows if I would have been successful being able to do that. We, you know, early on, I had an opportunity to take a, a term sheet for a lot more money. And um, we chose not to, myself included, opting to go for a little bit more, you know, quote unquote, capital efficient route. I think, you know, we combined this sentiment of we need to sort of get to a relative amount of scale to stay relevant in the industry when there's 300 other guys that are doing the same business. But we didn't have the capitalization to support that growth. And so ultimately I think we just bit off more than we could chew and it became more than I was capable of managing effectively. Um, but if you look at the guys who are out there who have made it, most of them had early in their business, a significant financing event on the equity side. Mm -hmm. And most of them, you know, on a secondary, on, on their second raise on their series B had, raised well, you know, well over $100 million of equity. And I think 
you know, look, people who have been in lending and financial services, especially finance for their whole lives and have far more gray hair than me would probably say, well, duh, you need a lot of money. These are capital intensive businesses. And I think, you know, the fintech folks, certainly some of them who were newer to the, to the business didn't either couldn't have landed that capital or didn't quite understand or realize how, how much capital you needed. So ultimately it was, we didn't, you know, for the amount of capital that we amassed at the various stages of our business, you know, we, we went, we tried to go too fast, too big with them. And I don't think I'm the first person who's seen that that doesn't work well. And, but you know, that's how it goes. Right. Right. So then now you've had some bit of time to sort of, you know, consider sort of the space you're in. I'm curious to, to get your take on, you know, on the online lending space in general today, and particularly the, the small business lending space. What are your thoughts on the impact it's making on the, on the success of the players and the opportunities? If I had to pick one word to describe the small business lending space, non-bank at least, I would say messy. Um, <laughs> You know, it's sort of this weird market where you have a small handful of well-capitalized fintechs or, you know, alternative lenders that are really doing more than lending. They're, they're innovating on product. They're innovating on payments. They're really rewriting, rewriting, underwriting technologies. And then you have a bunch of smaller guys, certainly in, in sort of the daily debit or cash advance world that no one's ever heard of that are out there sort of printing money, but it's back of the envelope type origination. And so I think there's this, it's yet to be seen to me what, what ultimately comes of that. I'm ultimately optimistic that someone or a set of someones will figure out how to do for a small business, what we at DealStruck and other entrepreneurs who are trying to make the capital markets better for these, you know, business owners, that they'll, you know, I'm optimistic that people will figure out how to do it. But you know, it's uh, there's sort of this competing battle between those who are trying to build brand and do it right for the long term, and those who are just kind of skimming off these small businesses to make a quick buck today. And uh, I think the the latter uh, can get in the way of the former. So we'll have to see sort of what happens longer term. But net net, I mean, look, the small business market is still huge and no one has become a gorilla. So even the biggest players are, are in the handful of billions and that's kind of a drop in the bucket. So right. I think there's a lot of room to run. Unfortunately, deal struck's not going to be running. Right. So I'm curious about, you know, it's been almost a year. What are you, what you've been doing personally and, and what's actually, what's next for you? Yeah. So when you run a company and certainly when you run one that's going through distress, you know, your personal life takes a back seat for better or worse. So it's been a, you know, had a few months of deferred maintenance, if you will, on my <laughs> personal life that I had to, to take care of. And, you know, recently have, have just uh, kind of come to the realization that, as, for as much pain and as much difficulty as the deal struck experience was of my, of my own making, I'm not a victim, right? Of my own making, I want to do it again. So <laughs> I don't know if it will be in FinTech. I don't know if it will be in lending. I'm certainly involved in the space doing some consulting work and staying up to speed on the happenings, but I've also looked at business opportunities outside of 
finance and lending. So I, I don't yet know what it's going to be, but I have a feeling whatever it is, it's, it's going to be a startup and I'm looking forward to doing it differently and doing it better next time around. Okay. Well, we're, we're pretty much out of time, uh, but, but just one last question. Where can people buy your book? Uh, the book's on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and search for Unwound, Real-Time Reflections, Stumbling Entrepreneur, you will find a book by me and it's available on Prime. And if you take a copy, uh, there's paperback, there'll be a Kindle version. That would be amazing. And tell me what you think. Leave a review, contact me. You can visit a website, ethancenturia.com and I uh, hope you enjoy. And we will link to both of those, uh, both of those um, websites in the show notes. So anyway, I really appreciate you coming on the show today, Ethan, and, and telling your story and telling us about the book. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks, Peter. Okay. See ya. So personally, I, I found it very refreshing to read Ethan's book. I feel like being through some pretty challenging times, it was, it was great to, to read, you know, how he dealt with them, some of the challenges that he, that he overcame and the challenges that he couldn't overcome and the missteps and, and the successes. And I feel like it was to me a really informative read and an enjoyable read. I, I, I think anyone in the online lending space can relate to the, you know, the challenges that Ethan went through. And I, I think, I, I, as I mentioned, the brutal honesty, I feel like this was something that he didn't sugarcoat. He was somewhat self-critical without really being demeaning to himself. He was, it really is a book that I think is not just a, a non-fiction learning book, but it's a real story. It's a good story and it's an interesting story, one that doesn't necessarily have a happy ending, but it was a fascinating read nonetheless. And I, I, I can highly recommend it to anybody in the online learning space. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Today's episode was sponsored by AlphaFlow, the first automated real estate investment service founded and operated by professional investment managers who build you a diversified portfolio of 75 to 100 real estate loans. Ray Stern, the CEO of AlphaFlow, was a guest on our recent podcast episode number 122. Using analytics, data, and institutional best practices, AlphaFlow is revolutionizing the way we access and invest in professionally managed real estate portfolios. Go to alphaflow.com slash lendacademy to find out more.